Welcome to the show, everybody. We are going to be cranking out episodes, trying to do three audio episodes a week. Two um, of those are video, uh, so one from the before times, two new videos. I already have two months banked. Um, I, I know I mentioned this before, and we are going to do it. All of the things with the protesting and everything else happened. We put everything on hold, um, and, uh, and we're back. Uh, we used that time wisely. My goodness, guys, lots of changes. New editor, new uh, new business plans, new um, uh, new better highlights. There's still a lot of stuff that's already um, recorded. Like today's episode was was recorded April eighth. Just so you know, you might hear some of these and some of the references because of the, how fast the world is changing. Might not make as much sense um, in, in you know in the next couple months, just because a lot of these were recorded in April and May. Um, but uh, working on that as well. Um, the the cool I think the cool thing about the highlights is because I'm going to be putting out so much. Um, content so many more episodes than normal and and at the same time some of you have less time than normal to enjoy podcasts so this will allow you the opportunity to to um, you know get get a couple highlights of each episode and and decide um, which full episodes that you really want to dive into um, more so just a, a bit more detail than than just say reading the description or episode title. Just a little something that I think is going to add quite a bit. And um, and so if you uh, if you're into that idea, I could use some YouTube subscribers. That'd be terrific. Um, and um, uh, that that will help me get the ball rolling with with all of this. And uh, and also on YouTube. The cool thing about YouTube is it allows you guys to comment uh, on on each episode. You can comment uh, and ask questions. I'm going to take all of those comments and questions and try to store that. We're going to try to organize them for when we have future episodes where we do similar topics. And so, yeah. Um, lots of cool, interesting things, and that's not even the half of all the behind-the-scenes business stuff that I've done that are going to make lots of improvements in the months to come in video, audio quality, everything else. So, uh, thanks for the support, and whew, the the craziest, the crazy, uh, wow, you know, this has been, this is... Jeez, I I hope you guys are doing uh, well out there. Um, I hope I, I'm sure many of you are are thriving and and perhaps if you're anything like me, this has made you see um, a whole bunch of different aspects of uh, yourself and your business and family and life itself in a number of new uh, ways. Some of them very exciting and constructive. And, um, and so there are, there's so much opportunity out there really trying to focus on that, but I'm not going to dismiss all the hard times many of you are going through out there. I've gone through a lot of hard times myself, so I appreciate you guys. I, I, uh, I appreciate your support 
and I'm going to keep on doing what I can to tackle a lot of like mental health issues and uh, economic issues, thing, things like that, doing my small part to make the world a better place, and I'm so happy to have a community of people interested in uh, in, in hearing, uh, hearing me listen to a bunch of smarter people um, tell me how life works. So uh, enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, my guest is Josh Tiber. Josh, why don't you introduce yourself for people? Happy to do so. Thanks for having me on here, Shane. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm an associate professor at VU Amsterdam. That's Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam. Uh, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. I did my PhD at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. And I've been here in Amsterdam for about nine years. Um, I'm an evolutionary psychology by training. And I'm especially interested in studying human emotion and personality. Um, amazing. Uh, uh, many of my favorite topics. Um, so this will be a fantastic conversation. What, what, um, what's kind of your, your, could you go a little more in depth into your background? Yeah, sure. So, um, if we're going really into depth, I, uh, I started at Arizona state in 2000 for my bachelor's degree. And, uh, I tried studying exercise science at first, really liked sports. My parents were massage therapists and I thought that would be a cool thing to study. Didn't really work out after six months, a little bit too jocks and bros for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I kind of stumbled my way into, um, some psychology classes and I found it to be really, really thought provoking, a really cool thing to study. And I ended up working in research labs. And um, there was a specific researcher at Arizona State named Steve Newberg, who was studying prejudice, but thinking about it in terms of the threats people perceive from different groups and how those different threats would lead to different emotional responses. And those different emotional responses could lead to different kind of shades of prejudice. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, we were studying how some groups um, are perceived as threats to physical safety and that would lead to prejudices that are more fear-based and some other groups might be perceived as economic threats and that could lead to prejudices that were more anger-based. But then all of these different groups were having, were, they, they were eliciting disgust. And um, this was really confusing because sometimes people said, well, this group's disgusting, but I think they're a health threat. And other times it was, well, this is kind of a moral threat or a values threat. And there wasn't kind of this clean mapping between one perceived threat and disgust. Mm -hmm. And so when I started my PhD in evolutionary psychology, thinking about emotions in terms of how natural selection has shaped them to motivate us to do different things, I thought, well, this is really a mystery and this is really cool to try to understand. So I kind of dedicated my graduate career when I was doing my PhD to better understanding disgust. And I've continued doing that as a professor. Amazing. Um, yeah, I believe I had Steve uh, Newberg on like five years ago on the podcast in, in my first first year of, of doing it. And um, yeah, I, I uh, 
the outgroup stuff is is incredible. And I had I had um, Deb uh, Deb Lieberman on um, the first time uh, two years ago or something like that when her book first first came out. And that's been such a uh, such a thought provoking thing for me ever since to think that these that these disgust mechanisms that, that you get sick to your stomach um when when thinking about some outgroup something that uh, some some moral behavior or moral action is making you sick to your stomach even though you're not eating that moral action mm-hmm, <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. you're you're you don't have to worry about eating someone stealing something from you or or, or what, whatever but um it's that's such a strange um and and uh from from a um from an outsider logical perspective it it seems strange that we got wired that way well it's strange to insiders too and it's uh <laughs> it's it's only strange if you think about it a little bit because yeah. most of these things, they feel totally natural to us. And we only realize how strange a lot of our behaviors and our emotions and our thoughts are when you take a step back and you kind of examine humans as if you're an alien. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if aliens came to Earth and they saw what we're doing, what are the things that they would think are really weird? Yeah. And those are some of the coolest things to try to understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I, I've been speaking a little bit about... Um, Another example um, that, that's similar to that is why we like children. That, that's something mm-hmm. that like everyone's like, well, we, uh, who doesn't like children? We like children because we like babies because they're cute. And, ever, and, and <laughs> it, it's, it's very rare to hear anyone outside of like the field of evolution talking about babies as these kind of parasitic <laughs> costs on our lives. But, uh, but it's funny that, that in speaking of, um, of disgust, uh, babies do all of these disgusting things and, and it only takes, you know, this outsider perspective of like caring for another person's baby, babysitting someone else's baby and having to change someone else's diaper or <laughs> someone else's kid's diaper that, that it becomes obvious like, oh, these are some very gross things that, that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I definitely like to return to that because that's one of the really fascinating things about the kind of disgust that leads us to avoid infectious disease. Sure. I don't mean to skip ahead too much. <laughs> well, let's uh, <laughs> let's. Um, yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, about germs, about pathogens, sure. about viruses and bacteria and, you know, why these things are such a problem and how yeah. uh, they've been a problem for long before COVID-19 right now yeah so um you know life first developed on earth with just single cell organisms and as soon as there were single cell organisms or you know shortly thereafter there are other organisms that are parasitizing them that are basically hijacking their own metabolism for that parasite's benefit and so we have the evolution of more complex organisms organisms that are filling different niches and sometimes that can lead to less complexity, depending on how you're looking at complexity. But regardless, there are always these kinds of arm races between the organisms and the smaller organisms that are feasting on them, that are kind of reproducing inside of them. And what we see across all complex animals, 
across all vertebrates it, um, and across also plants um, are these immune systems that can recognize internal invaders and um, and try to neutralize them, try to destroy them once they've entered your body. Super complex stuff, super metabolically expensive stuff. Um, and animals don't just deal with pathogens by neutralizing once they invade the body. We've also evolved all of these cool ways to detect pathogens in the environment. Mm. Now, this is pretty tricky because viruses and bacteria are really small. We can't see them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the first person to ever know that a bacteria existed, to, to have ever seen one, um, was Antony von Leeuwenhoek in the Netherlands, only about 400 years ago, an amateur microscope maker who peered into the world of microbes for the first time and saw these little things swimming around, mm -hmm. these things that have been infecting humans for as long as there have been humans, that have been infecting our hominid ancestors for as long as there have been hominids, that have been infecting mammals for as long as there have been mammals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have humans walking through the earth for the last 200,000 years, constantly being threatened by bacteria and by viruses and also by macroparasites, but never actually knowing that they exist. Mm -hmm. Now, nevertheless, given that viruses and bacteria are such a big problem, so they don't just kill us, but especially in conditions where we don't have access to hospitals and ventilators mm -hmm. and clean running water and anti antibiotics, just having mild infections can be a big problem for people. It can keep you from gathering food. It can keep you from caring for your kin and your um, uh, social allies. It can make you ostracized from other people in the community if all of a sudden you're perceived as an infection threat. So what selection can do is shape our visual systems, our auditory systems, our olfactory systems, not to be able to directly detect the viruses and bacteria that might be around us, but to treat certain locations where those viruses and bacteria are reliably housed as information regarding the probability that viruses and bacteria are present. Mm -hmm. Now that can sound um, maybe a, a little bit abstract, but let's think about a really concrete example. Let's think about poop. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, feces is one of the most reliable locations that harmful bacteria or bacteria that are harmful to humans are housed. Okay. People are uh, regularly potentially coming into contact with it. Um, and, you know, these bacteria aren't necessarily harmful in our bodies, but when they leave the uh, digestive tract, if they're then ingested orally, that can cause some really big problems. And so what our olfactory systems can do is evolve to when detecting the chemical signatures of the bacteria that are typically housed in human feces have an avoidance reaction. Mm. Our minds can generate an emotion disgust. And what is disgust? What do you primarily feel like doing when you feel disgust? Um, avoiding it, uh, uh, get, getting the heck out of there. Absolutely. <laughs> Every, uh, you, you, even uh, any anytime you're walking through a park or whatever, and you uh, and you see like a little landmine left by a dog, you know you're <laughs> you're hyper vigilant uh, for that. And if you if you see anything that resembles anything like it, you're not you're not really like investigating further. Like, is that really poop, or is that 
<laughs> yeah, you just you just avoid it. Yeah, the the other interesting thing about this is in terms of um, uh, you know when we were talking about all of the seeming like common sense. I I think any any um, listener new to evolutionary theory would be like, oh, I just don't. Of course, poop's disgusting. You're not telling me anything new there. But if you think about something like a dung beetle, uh, a, a dung beetle loves poop. <laughs> it's 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 heaven. It's it's everything it dreams about. It's its food source. It's its house. It's its it's its penthouse. It's where it picks up mates. It's where it raises its children. Absolutely. So I, I'm not familiar with dung beetle olfaction, but if they have a sense of smell similar to ours, it probably smells like chocolate cake. Or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It smells like cinnamon rolls. Um, but so you said that your primary motivation, if you were to smell shit in the park, is yeah. to avoid it. Yeah. Now, what's, what's your primary motivation if you're in the park and someone jumps out with a knife? Um, run. Usually. Well, it's also, or fight. Yeah. Or fight, but it's also it's also avoid. So maybe you know maybe there might be a fight if he's right in front of you. But if you see someone you know kind of far that could be a threat, yeah, it's also to avoid. An interesting thing about thinking about disgust versus other avoidance emotions is that the avoidance it engenders is specifically tailored for pathogen threats. Mm. So. You know, people with knives or lions or tigers or bears or snakes, they have muscles and they can chase you and they want to chase you often. Mm -hmm. You're you're food for them in that kind of way. Hopefully not with the guy with the knife, but, Mm -hmm. you know, he wants something from you. Pathogens can only basically, you know, eat you (laughs) Um, or, or take advantage of your metabolic resources from the inside when you come into contact with them. So the avoidance isn't so much, well, I need to run as fast as I can away from this because that has its own cost. And you can't fight poop either. And you you don't want to. No, because that might involve touching it. (laughs) But but yeah, the, the avoidance is really tailored for I need to avoid physical contact with this. Not necessarily, I need to make sure that this thing doesn't chase me. Mm -hmm. So our different types of avoidance emotions, again, are going to be tailored to the specific nature of the threat involved. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, please. So once you, um, so, so what, what kind of, um, sensory software have we evolved with to, um, to avoid something that you can't see with the human eye. Yeah. So, uh, we've talked about olfactory cues, for example, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, there are different, uh, different kind of chemicals that are involved in vomit versus feces versus spoiled fish versus, uh, rotten meat, et cetera. And in my research lab, I've actually worked with chemists where we try to reproduce these chemicals. So it really will smell like vomit or shit or rotten fish, even though, you know, it's just, it's just the specific chemicals that are involved in those smells. Who, who uh, has, who has that, uh, that lucky task by, <laughs> by the way of, well, of smell and taste testing all, all these. <laughs> well, our, our research participants get to smell it, <laughs> uh, but they're in pretty small doses. 
Okay. But no, we've actually worked with a chemist who uh, works for a major, um, I, I won't say what company he works for because he's kind of doing this on the side, but he's, yeah. he works for a world-class chemistry lab and also is an independent It's Jelly Belly, we'll isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the Harry Potter vomit, uh, vomit jelly bean. Yeah. Um, but you asked about cues. So yeah. there's also visual cues. And, um, you know, there's certain colors and certain textures. And we can also think about uh, humidity or viscosity with substances. But specifically with color and texture, we can also think about social cues. So if you look at some of the deadliest diseases in human history, most of them produce some kind of features that are detectable in the face. So some of these are, uh, you know, the pallor that goes along with being feverish, um, sweating, clammy kind of skin. Mm -hmm. But others like smallpox create these rashes that which can then be kind of hard uh, pus filled nodules. Um, another infectious disease that uh, for any listeners here, I encourage you to Google it, although be prepared to be a little bit disgusted. Uh, is called yaws, and yaws is really interesting. It's actually um, related to the bacteria that causes syphilis, but it's not uh, generally transmitted. It doesn't primary, primarily target the reproductive tract. It's more generous, uh, generally cutaneous. And what you'll see on Google image, um, this is mostly endemic to sub-Saharan Africa, and you'll see children with these um, kind of yellowish rashes on their face. And it's really, it's tragic. I mean, these are things that can be treated with antibiotics mm -hmm. and the transmission can be inhibited with good hygiene. Um, and some places in the world, people just don't have access to this. And so they can still contract this disease, but it's absolutely something where if you see it, you absolutely would not want to have contact with a person who has this. Mm -hmm. And it, it's a good, I mean, well, I shouldn't say it's a good thing. It's very bad for these people because they're socially excluded. But um, avoiding that contact is important if you don't want to catch that pathogen. Right. So then in, in terms of these arm races, how yeah. how does that, uh, so so once we pick up on, on these kind of, avoidant thing we we pick up on different colorations to avoid different um like oh okay a anything anything pussy uh let's stay away from that i'm sure there's some safe pusses out there but let's just let's just uh, have a general heuristic if there's something pussy we'll just kind of try to avoid it how how does um then a uh, a disease a parasite any any of these threats then outwit um, those those systems. How do you have um, you, you know? How how does something like um, maybe a, a latent onset or something like that evolve? Uh, I, you know, I, th I think of uh, of COVID not showing symptoms right away now, or AIDS certainly not showing symptoms for um, for quite a while. How how does something like that evolve? Yeah. So there are selection pressures on the pathogens themselves. Right. Um, and there's kind of a trade off between uh, or, or at least some some epidemiologists make convincing uh, arguments that this is the case. So there's some disagreement in the uh, virology community, but there's a trade off between uh, the virulence of the infection, how hard it actually hits someone and then whether it can be transmitted to other people. Mm -hmm. So basically, if if the pathogen um, or parasite in some cases completely knock someone out and they're not able to move around 
and infect other people, that's kind of a dead end for that specific virus. Mm -hmm. um, you can have selection then favor uh, different variants of the virus that are less deadly and um, uh, even well less virulent, less uh, producing less severe symptoms, if that then allows the person to walk around and interact with other people and also infect them. This is arguably why some of the um, some of the most damaging parasites are spread by mosquitoes and tsetse flies and ticks, because mm. those pathogens aren't relying upon um, the human to walk around and infect other people. These things that fly around or uh, crawl around are doing that job. So there's very little there's very little pressure on the pathogen to to be less um, deleterious. I've never thought about it like that. That, that is, it's so I just found out recently too that there's like um, it, it, something like malaria can't even be contracted like hu human to human. It actually needs to go through a mosquito first. There's something in the process of it before before it can then infect a human. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's also uh, there's another interesting thing that you raised regarding the arms race. So. Yeah. The pathogens that we are seeing now, um, most of them are going to be quite a bit different than the pathogens that uh, we encountered 10,000 years ago, mm -hmm. or at least a lot of the ones that we're concerned about presently. Um, and these pathogen detection systems, they're not actually detecting a specific pathogen. They're often detecting things like a, a person's immune response, which might be a cue to a general kind of infection. So someone coughing their lungs out is not necessarily going to be specific to tuberculosis or specific to something else, um, COVID-19 potentially, um, or specific to a pathogen from 50,000 years ago. But it is going to be potentially a cue to some kind of respiratory infection mm -hmm. and a cue to, well, whatever is in that person's lungs is now being expelled into the air around them. So right. maybe not being in that vicinity is a good idea. The the this trade off between um, uh, a, a virus's um, ability to take all this energy and knock someone out quick is is dependent on how how likely this person is to get up and move around. So you have something like rabies that might make someone like more aggressive and and, and more apt to um, to pass this around. Um, it, but but back to AIDS. I've I've heard mm -hmm. speculation in the past that that potentially some of the earlier um, variants of of AIDS were more costly because um, uh, before awareness, before people had changed their practices uh, and people were still, you know, having sex and being promiscuous or whatever with AIDS, um, uh, it, it it was able to incur more of this cost because it was still being spread on. Once uh, once kind of public awareness got out there and people started taking more precautions, um, the strains that were selected for were were the ones that weren't as costly that allowed someone to, to basically kind of live longer to give more opportunities to be spread. Am I kind of um, uh, articulating that? Um, oh, correctly? absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean that seems totally plausible to me. I'm 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 actually not familiar specifically with HIV, right. and partially because HIV doesn't produce these types of cues that I'm right. really interested in understanding discussed. Right. But as far as the the general processes of uh, reducing virulence as a function of promoting transmission, it makes total sense to me. Yes. And because I was thinking about this in terms of the the COVID nineteen, there must be a lot of different mutations of it and as for as for social distancing more are uh, i i imagine uh, we are able to to stop um many of the the strains that are more virulent um quicker or have or have a quicker onset or or quicker symptoms um so are we in a way selecting for the ones that um that are less virulent or or have like a, a more latent onset? Well, let's hope so. I mean, um, my, my understanding of kind of ant, uh, the early stages of viruses, if they are transmitting, spe- if they're crossing species like mm-hmm. this has, my understanding of that is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it certainly seems plausible to me. Now, the only thing that I've read, uh, and of course, we're, we're in the very early stages of understanding COVID-19. But one thing that I've read uh, with respect to this kind of argument of decreased virulence is by early estimates of mutation rates, it might take several years mm-hmm. for it to actually reduce uh, virulence to the level that we would want. Mm-hmm. The thing with COVID-19 is even if the case fatality rate is 1.5% or something, um, that's... Uh, that's pretty minor in the scale of a lot of the viruses that we've been dealing with uh, since humans started living in cities. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean it's that it's not causing huge disruptions now, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's kind of in that spot where it's more destructive than the seasonal flu, mm-hmm. but it's nowhere near uh, SARS or the bird flu or something. Mm-hmm. And so it's in that place where it's not going to burn through people really fast. Um and it's not so uh, it's not so the case fatality rate and virulence isn't so low that we can continue around it. But, um, yeah, again, it's in that sweet spot where uh, um, it's being transmitted well, but it's causing severe disruption. And and um, and I, I've seen my my little uh, knowledge of it so far is that is that there's there's a low fatality rate, but there's also potentially long-term health costs um, for for getting it, you know, healthy individuals that survive uh, have potential costs um, for maybe the rest of their lives. Um, but what, what about uh, what about the transmission rate of COVID compared to um, other diseases out there? Have you have you do you know anything about about that by chance? Oh, you know, I, uh, I, I've, I've certainly tried to be an educated layperson as far yeah, as COVID, yeah. but, yeah. but not being a virologist, you know, all I can do is uh, transmit what I have read on mm-hmm. Twitter from epidemiologists whom I trust, which is that it's uh, a bit more infectious than influenza. Mm. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, once you have evolved these avoidant tendencies to say respiratory issues like avoiding people that are coughing or say um, mucus uh, or anything like that, watery eyes. Um, 
why is it that we're, or at least have been, so comfortable with the common flu? Why? Why is it? it certainly, certainly, no one's terribly attracted to someone blowing their nose or anything like that. But, um, but we we certainly um, don't seem to panic, and may, and maybe that's shifting now. That's that's the other kind of thing that I want to move into is how flexible are some of these adaptations, which is because all of a sudden now you have a bunch of humans that, I mean, uh, someone clears their throat and and everyone runs for the hills, Um, you you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was at a conference, um, gosh, it was uh, February 27th or something. Mm-hmm. And I was having horrible allergies. And during a talk where there were 50 people in the room, I was just constantly sneezing into my arm. And I was getting so many dirty looks from people in the audience that I just had to leave. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I knew that I had allergies. But, uh, yeah, people were certainly acting um, a lot more negatively toward that than they would have under under typical circumstances. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, one interesting thing about reactions to things like coughs and sneezes and other types of kind of hygiene violations, we could call them, is that some of these might have actually evolved culturally in the last few hundred years through something called the civilizing process. So basically the idea that um, certain things like that we could call manners, mm-hmm. um, uh table manners, not belching, not blowing your nose, sneezing into your elbow instead of just out in the air, these could have started to be associated with some kind of higher class. Um, And there could be some kind of norms developing to, well, you know, you don't do this at the table, you do this in private, you do this, um, you do this into a tissue, something like that. And, um, you know, we're seeing some of that flexibility now where there can not just be biological evolution in terms of kind of olfactory cues or visual cues to infection, basically not wanting to come into contact with another person's bodily fluids. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, we can kind of potentially scaffold some culturally transmitted information about this specific type of person might be more likely to be infected Mm. or a person who's coughing, you know, that's the symptom of this disease. Mm. Um, Maybe that's a person you really want to avoid. And so we can, we can certainly, there's a lot of flexibility in terms of the biological adaptations, which we can talk about later in terms of babies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's also quite a bit of flexibility in terms of um, socially transmitted information about infection risks. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the kind of stigma involved in in uh, picking your nose and and like being being at a stoplight and looking over and someone just caught you picking your nose in your own car very far away from them and and they're like, oh my god, you know, we have this reaction to it, but. Um, most of I like to think all of us pick our nose in, in in private. Maybe I do more than more than other people. Well, and especially children do. So yeah. that's something where you know there's there's a lot of socialization happening in terms of what's socially acceptable with that behavior. Yeah, and um, you know another interesting thing is that as our as we've gotten more and more control over infectious disease in our societies. 
um, our, our norms for hygiene and regulating that type of stuff have become more and more strict. Huh. And that could be just because, um, you know, there's, there's just a little bit of extra uh, space that we can go to have even more pathogen avoidance. Yeah. Whereas if you live in a really, really pathogen rich environment, that extra little behavior, doing it or not, might not actually be uh, moving the needle too much in terms of infection risks. That is fascinating, and I'd never really thought about the class take of like, yeah, like going back to back to picking your nose. This is something that like someone someone does in like a, a, a you know like a dumb uneducated character or, or like you know trailer trash or whatever like. Yeah, you know, miming picking your nose is something that you like. This is what lower class people do. Like, like none of us. James Bond doesn't pick his nose. You know. Yeah, and you know, oftentimes people can signal to others their social class and um, uh, their wealth and their access to these types of social circles in terms of knowing what types of behaviors are quote unquote, disgusting or are hygiene appropriate or not. And then uh, people who have other things on their mind, like they're doing a lot of manual labor or they're worrying more about getting food on their table than necessarily working their way up um, high society, you know, they might not be investing so much in learning those norms, or really attending to them because, again, their efforts are placed uh, elsewhere. Huh. I, now I'm thinking about handkerchiefs and how, you, you know, you have like a blue collar worker uh, wearing as out his back pocket, you know, it's not visible. Mm-hmm. But then you have you, 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 you get dressed up to go fine dining and you have this lovely little handkerchief that it, it, it's also interesting that it's like displaying it in this elegant way. Like, look, I'm using this. I have a handkerchief. Haven't used it. It's it's impeccable. Mm-hmm. It's it's spotless. Look Freshly how ironed. I am. <laughs> Freshly ironed. Wow. I had never really thought about that before. Huh. Well, uh, I love evolutionary psychology so much. It just always blows my mind. Um, so, so, um, and and sorry like i've said before we started recording you're welcome to steer the ship in any way that that you want but i i do have one if you if you don't mind um um one last thing regarding kind of class and um and hygiene and avoidance Mm -hmm. it i've also seen speculation that as um, as an area improves its say sanitation processes and um, improves um, public health, uh, they also tend to become more um, more progressive, um, uh, like less fearful of of outgroups, more accepting of um, non normative sexual or or mating behaviors. Um, you know where I'm going with this? And, I do. And, yeah. And are we skipping ahead too much to tie this no, together? No. no, not at all. No. So this is definitely an empirical pattern. If you look across different countries, those with lower infectious disease burdens, which are often a product of these types of things that you're talking about, better sanitation, better hygiene, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, they tend to be 
more kind of socially liberal. They tend to have uh, less kind of um, inter intranational uh, conflict. Um, now, there's a few different perspectives on explaining these relationships. Uh, one perspective is that um, having a lot of infectious disease around actually calibrates people's minds to be more conservative. Mm -hmm. And the argument behind that is basically that a lot of um, kind of conservative values impede disease transmission. Mm -hmm. There's fewer intergroup interactions. There's less kind of promiscuous sex. Um, there might be fewer departures from traditional hygiene rituals or food preparation rituals. Um, another perspective that other researchers have argued is that uh, the countries with really high disease burdens, they were really difficult for um, liberal Western democracies, or I guess they weren't democracies yet, but um, Western countries to colonize and to import institutions to. And that it's mm. the institutions that are allowing for these kinds of liberal values. Um, so basically, when um, when the British and the French and the Spanish, et cetera, were going in uh, colonizing different places and setting up, uh, you know, legal systems and market based economies, et cetera, when they got to areas where everyone was dying of malaria or dysentery or something, not worth it. Um, <laughs> Pass. Not, well, not worth it, or we can't sustain it. They're, you know, they're not they're not lasting. And so these types of, you know, quote unquote, Western values, um, and it's not just about progressive stuff. It can also be about how you view kinship mm -hmm. and how you view uh, indirect social ties, et cetera. Um, things like kin based uh, uh, relation systems um, and less kind of generalized reciprocity and cooperation. Those things might be more endemic to places with higher parasite loads just because those places weren't colonized by the countries that have the liberal values. Um, and at this point, th there's a disagreement in the literature. And uh, I, I, I think that it's I don't think that anyone's come up with a good test to try to disentangle those two perspectives. Hmm. Um. <laughs> So, so uh, diseases are in a way protected against modernity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they're, they're protective, and they might be kind of uh, they might be kind of harming modernity if they get to uh, if they get too severe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe this is this is this why is this why we associate hippies with being dirty and, and, and hippies are like the world's moving too fast. We need to slow things down. <laughs> there, yeah, well, there's some sort of correlations going on there. Yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah, we could probably uh, probably have a nice hour long discussion about hippies and disgust. Um, <laughs> but uh, huh. hey, let, let me let me bring this back to the flexibility sure. stuff that I mentioned sure. earlier, because, you know, we talked about flexibility in terms of um, what we can think of as cultural transmission. So wearing masks or being informed of, you know, what the symptoms of COVID-19 might be and being especially attentive to coughs in a way that you might not have been last year. But there's also a lot of flexibility in terms of these biological adaptations for detecting certain kind of sensory cues. Hmm. Um, and you mentioned the baby earlier, and the baby's gonna be a great example of a broader phenomenon. So uh, I don't have kids, but um, you know, yeah, I do know me kids. Either. <laughs> okay. We're doing it <laughs> right. right. 
Well, <laughs> we're doing we're doing it right right now. I do have some friends who have kids under eight years old, and it is uh, it hasn't been easy for the past few weeks. Yeah. But um, and in case this is dated in the future, you know, this is the first week of April, and people have been locked down with their kids for three or four weeks, yeah. being uh, caretakers, educators, and also trying to work full time. And yeah. uh, they're 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 realizing what a blessing primary school education is. But, I, I, um, I mean, I mean, not, this is also this is also a bit like the first time in in human history that I can think of where this is this is a regular. Be, I mean, most of our ancestors had the kind of um, takes a village type of, you know, they had babysitters built in uh, to the yeah. situation and you could still I, you could still go out and hunt and whatever else. Yeah, there's something called alloparenting, which is the norm for most of human history, which yeah. is not a, a nuclear family. I mean, um, there's a researcher named Rebecca Sear who might be interesting for you to talk to about. She's she's a demographer who studies uh, family structures, and she's made the point that the the traditional family that you hear about in terms of uh, Western social conservatives and maybe especially U.S. social conservatives. Well, that's really that's really a abnormal. It's really a novelty of the past couple hundred years. For most of human history, the traditional family uh, consists of alloparenting with extended kin networks and even unrelated individuals sharing and child rearing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, now you're dumping people with small children who have uh, two parent uh, incomes into the situation where they're exclusive caregivers. I mean, again, it, it's it's difficult for us to fully empathize not being in that situation, but it's really, uh, yeah, it's really mind-boggling to think about all the effort there. Uh, and the taking. way work and family life is blending together, it's it's crazy. I'm so anyway. I'm I'm sorry, sorry to parents for saying this. I'm thankful that I don't have kids right now. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you can. Uh, but continue where you're going with um, the baby yeah, parents. sure. So um, it, it's it's incredible. I've heard from several people who have had children where, you know, uh, before they had kids, the idea of changing a diaper yeah. or the idea of being vomited on yeah. is just, you know, we're both making the facial expressions as we're looking at each other now, just that little tinge of disgust. Yeah. And But, you know, as soon as you have your baby, uh, the majority of people, and actually, interestingly enough, um, every mother I've spoken with, uh, has and most fathers, but not all fathers, <laughs> have said, "Oh, it's not disgusting at all." No, there, I, there's just I, I don't have that response at all, and I was surprised. But it's just completely natural. Um, but that's not the only instance where something that's typically disgusting is not disgusting at all. Mm -hmm. So um, I want you to, I want you to think for a second of uh, someone whom you really like, uh, a close friend of yours, your best friend. So you don't need to say that person's name, but just picture that person. Okay. Um, picture drinking out of the same glass as that person. Uh -huh. So you're sharing a beer or something. Um, or picture uh, you guys work out together. You go for a run, you go to the gym, something. Uh, you pat him or her on the back and it's a little sweaty, something like that. Mm -hmm. So maybe not something that you necessarily fantasize about. It's right. really appealing, but you're also not like, you know, uh, quivering in disgust right now think about someone that you know personally that you really dislike think about someone who you just find to be an arrogant asshole untrustworthy their voice grates on you all that type of stuff 
Okay, so picture a person. Again, don't tell me who it is in case they're a listener. <laughs> but you have this person in mind. Now picture drinking from the same glass as that person. Or picture patting them on the bat when they're on the back when they're sweaty. So if you're like most of my research participants, when you think about the exact same behaviors that have pretty similar pathogen transmission risks, those things are way more disgusting when you're doing them with someone that you really dislike mm -hmm. than when you're doing them with someone who you really, you really like. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for this. And that is that these pathogen avoidance responses they're, they're good for inhibiting pathogen transmission, but they're kind of bad for our social relationships too. Mm -hmm. If we wanted to invest maximally in terms of avoiding infectious disease, we would never touch anyone and we would never touch anything that anyone has ever touched. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't survive very long doing that, right. even in our modern world. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but of course, you also don't want to be completely open to any contact. You don't want to be open to touching anyone or licking anyone or anything or putting things in your mouth that people have touched. That's incurring a lot of pathogen risks where there aren't benefits. So what, uh, you know, Deborah Lieberman, one of your previous guests, what she and I have talked about is how our pathogen avoidance psychology, which, you know, gives rise to disgust, shouldn't just consider these cues to pathogens, mm -hmm. but it should also consider the, the benefits of the relationship um, that's involved in terms of transmission. Mm -hmm. Now, this is with socially transmitted pathogens. It's not necessarily with mold on uh, bread or something like that, but things like, you know, sweat on someone's palm or whether someone sneezed or coughed or sharing a glass with someone. Um, these are the types of things where if we're super disgusted by them with someone whose welfare we value a lot, uh, we're going to not be able to take advantage of that relationship as readily. Mm -hmm. And so what, what, we, what we can see as a byproduct of that is just being, yeah, okay, it doesn't bother me to, sh to drink a beer out of the same glass as you do, even though, again, I have no information that you don't have COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, or that your COVID-19 status is any different from that of a stranger's. Mm. So these different bonding and mating mechanisms are are able to kind of override the disgust system. It's 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 more like I mean if a because if, if if a stranger at a bar puked on you, uh, that would be one of the most horrifying <laughs> <laughs> situations. Uh, some people have experienced that, um, but. <laughs> But your baby can burp up on you, and it's and it's just sort of cute. And it's still like no, no one's no one's necessarily drawn to that baby vomit, even if it's their own baby's vomit. It's just that those adorable eyes and their mm -hmm. and their uh, outrageously large head to body ratio. It's just mm -hmm. it's just so cute. It can it can trigger those avoided things. I mean, I, I've I've certainly, I, I've I've certainly been, um, uh, you know, in terms of mating, um, so physically attracted to a female that I've put my mouth in some precarious <laughs> <laughs> places. Yeah. So so this is interesting in that um, we can. So some of the research that we've done, we use something called a welfare trade-off task. 
Mm-hmm. And this welfare trade-off task, it just at, you ask the research participant to make a decision about whether they would rather this target that they're thinking of. So it could, if the target's their best friend, they would be thinking about that. If it's a, a mere acquaintance, they would be thinking about that person. And they're asked, would you rather get X sum of money or would you rather this other person get a different sum of money? So only one of you can get the money. And by asking a lot of questions and varying the amounts of money, you can take an estimate of how much you value the other person's welfare relative to your own welfare. And what we find is that across these different relationship types, so if you ask it about a romantic partner, or if you ask it about a closest friend, or a mere acquaintance, or someone you dislike, or a stranger, the higher the welfare trade-off ratio, the more you value the other person's welfare, the less disgusted you are by having these kind of pathogen risky contacts with that person. But you raised another point, and that's about your mouth with women. Mm -hmm. And there's another kind of benefit here that's not just a a social benefit. There's also a sexual benefit, a reproductive benefit that um, our our minds might, our disgust systems might kind of reroute these avoidance behaviors when there's that extra kind of uh, benefit or opportunity involved. And that's when you don't just get kind of lower disgust through indirect contact, but you're actually fine with putting your tongue in someone's mouth and kind of having it swim in saliva Mm -hmm. and some of the other things that you might have been referring to earlier. Um, Now, interestingly enough, we have these other kinds of disgust responses that don't seem to relate to infectious disease that much. And um, we're two dudes talking in the podcast and this, you know, we're, we're going to have to um, imagine a little bit what it's especially like for women in some circumstances. But uh, a, a kind of prototypical example of this type of disgust is to imagine that you're sitting at the bar, sitting at a bar and some strange guy who you don't know, who's not very attractive, comes up to you and inhales deeply by your ear and kind of with a husky voice says, you smell nice. <laughs> so am I supposed to stop using that? that <laughs> have, I been, have I been doing the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do? You know, I, Sorry, uh, I, I, think have, I have so many apologies to make out there. I've, I've been just going around <laughs> uh, smelling strangers. It's always good to get feedback from your friends on how effective those types of things are. But, um, you know, it. Uh, so but, I, 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 I get the point you're making. I, I taught a class, uh, similar content to this, a guest lecture a few uh, weeks ago, and I guess a month ago, before lockdown. And, you know, I was asking people, can you think about any discussed things that aren't um, related to germy type when you've ever felt disgust. And some people talked about moral stuff, which we can uh, get to in a moment, but I I kept kind of waiting. And then one um, woman in the class said, well, maybe when there's a a guy at the bar, and then you know there were 20 other women in the class and all of them started nodding and saying, oh yeah, I was thinking about that too. I just didn't want to say it. Um, Maybe because they didn't want to just say something that could be interpreted as just men are disgusting in general. Um, but the, uh, the broader point is that there's all types of sexual behaviors 
that we can find that when we picture ourselves engaging in them, or when people are propositioning us with them, we find disgusting. Mm -hmm. And again, the, the bar example or broader kinds of what you could call creepy comments, mm -hmm. um, that's one, uh, well, that's one category of examples. Another one that's universal and very similar for men and women is incest. Mm -hmm. So this is something that could be described as uh, a human universal. So across all cultures and almost universally for individuals within those cultures, uh, the thought of having sex with a sibling or with a parent or with an offspring uh, is one of the more disgusting things that people can picture. And there, you don't have any greater pathogen risk than you have having sex with another person, with an unrelated individual. Um, and further, uh, there are often really nice things about your siblings in terms of, um, you know, they're typically of a similar education level to you. They're typically of a roughly equal attractiveness level. They're typically in the right age range. These are all these desirable characteristics we have when we look for mates. Um, but for some reason, whereas other people with all those qualities might be, again, highly attractive and uh, they might be great to kiss, siblings are really, really aversive. And um, the proposed reason for this is that siblings on average are gonna have a far higher probability of having certain um, what are called deleterious recessive alleles. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, uh, alleles that um, when there's only one of them, they're not really causing too much damage. But once you, they pair up in your homozygous instead of heterozygous mm -hmm. at a specific locus, um, they can cause serious developmental problems, immune problems, et cetera, in offspring. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that uh, natural selection has shaped our sexual psychology to use these disgust feelings to steer us away from um, having sex with individuals whom there's a much higher chance of producing what would be kind of genetic dead ends, mm -hmm. um, which is a major cost in terms of an organism that doesn't reproduce that much and that invests a lot in offspring, humans. Um, and, uh, and yeah, these the same kind of uh, motivations might also apply to non-kin-based sex, mm -hmm. but also sex with people whom you just find unattractive mm -hmm. or people whom you haven't had an opportunity to assess. So that could be the creepy stranger who comes up and whispers something to mm -hmm. you. Um, and this person might, if you had a, a normal conversation with him, might turn out to be a great mate. But if they're just propositioning you with sex right away and you haven't had the opportunity to assess um, a lot of things about them, their health, their attractiveness, their mental capacity, their trustworthiness, et cetera, uh, there you immediately might have the avoidance motivation. So, uh, so, uh, I mean, this explains so much that even, even though I have uh, great hair, none of my family's ever made a move on me. Um, why, why is there, why is there kissing cousins? Why is, why is that a, a phenomenon out, out there? Why, why is it some of us find ourselves, uh, you know, attracted to, um, uh, cousins? Is it just because they're, is it because they're, uh, uh, it, it, you know, you hear jokes about the family reunions and stuff like that, but but is it is it because you don't see these people enough to to be cued to family thing? Is it because they're they're less related? What's going on there? 
yeah, it, it's it's funny because you need laws against like cousin made like no no one needs uh, no one really needs a law to to not try to mate with their immediate family you know no one's yeah. trying to do that so so this is actually a fascinating phenomenon in general and mm -hmm. uh we don't have time to delve into it deeply but the reason for there being incest well, laws in next time I get you on, we're, we're going to get we're going to whole conversation about incest, incest and hippies. But um, yeah, so basically just the fact that there are incest laws in general is a little puzzling just in terms of uh, parent offspring and siblings. And that these are things that almost no one wants to do in the first place. Like, again, yeah. you don't need a law that says don't have sex with your sister because almost no one wants to have sex with their sister. Yeah. Um, and so just as a, a as a cultural and legal issue, that's a that's kind of an interesting puzzle as to why those laws are there in the first place. As far as cousins go, again, there's a few different comments we can make. Um, one is that there's much more cross-cultural variability in terms of avoiding uh, sexual activities with cousins than there is with siblings and offsprings and offspring and parents. And the genetic consequences of reproducing with cousins are much less severe than those uh, for reproducing with siblings. And oftentimes there are other kinds of social advantages toward uh, cousin marriage. And so you have a lot of traditional uh, pre-industrial, uh, pre pre-agricultural societies where cousin marriage is actually encouraged. Mm -hmm. um, and again, uh, there are often good things about cousins. They're approximately the same age. They're often going to have, uh, they're going to have relatives in common who have shared interests, etc. cetera. Um, but as far as... Uh, as far as why cousins might be attractive, so we might not have these types of avoidance mechanisms in the first place. Um, one is that uh, with siblings, and your previous guest, Deborah Lieberman, probably talked about this some, um, people's disgust towards sex with their siblings is actually tied to two factors, whether they're the older sibling or the younger sibling, hmm. um, and um, how much they actually saw the sibling with their mother when they were growing up. Mm -hmm. So the idea basically is that if you're a younger sibling, um, you're just going to be disgusted by sex with your older sibling, no matter what. Okay. Um, uh, if you're an older sibling, basically what you're going to attend to is how much you've seen that kid with your mom, basically breastfeeding your mom, what's called a material maternal perinatal association. Mm -hmm. um, and so what you what you have sometimes in some uh, communal type of societies like Israeli kibbutz is that you actually have these kind of discussed incest avoidance responses toward people whom you might be good uh, romantic partners for because you're not genetically related, but you saw them with your mom so much when you were four or five years old mm -hmm. that the thought of sex with them is really disgusting. Mm -hmm. Now, with uh, bringing this back to cousins, um, in, you know, the, the way that family structures are set up in the U.S. right now, cousins are sometimes only going to see each other once or twice a year. And our minds might be processing that the same way as a classmate at school. So um, there might be some kind of social pressure or taboo uh, against having kind of sexual relationships with those people. But as far as the mental mechanisms that output our physical attraction and our repulsion are discussed, um, they're not really going to be attending to any kind of cues that might have motiv motivated avoidance in our ancestral past. Mm. Well, 
Yeah, heard it here first, everybody. Cousin mating, bit of a gray area. <laughs> bit of a gray area. <laughs> I, so let's let's move into um, uh, just shoot. I don't even know if we have time for the. Uh, do you do you have a couple extra minutes? Uh, if yeah, we, sure. I, I just want to get into morality quick. I I did. Um, um, I, uh, we we did just kind of have a um, similar discussion of of how these discussed mechanisms this all makes sense you want to okay you want to avoid uh, avoid poop there's there's going to be disease there you want to there, there's all, all these certain social situations that you either want to avoid or or override your um disease avoidance stuff to engage in more social situations then how, how do you get into these you, you you go from there um to using disgust when judging a political view or a um or someone else's act of i i used the example of stealing earlier how mm-hmm. how, mm-hmm. how is how is something like stealing a possession triggering a disgust mechanism yeah so th- this is a, a fascinating topic and a, a real puzzle for psychologists now when when i've thought about this in the past I've actually suggested that we should be breaking down this moral disgust stuff into two separate phenomena, two separate categories. One is the types of things that we moralize that we kind of find disgusting anyway. And those are kind of the sexual or pathogen types of things. And incest is a good example of this. I find incest, I I find the thought of myself having sex with um, a relative really disgusting. Um, but why would I judge you for having sex with your sister? Mm-hmm. And let's let's think about it more generally, not you and I, because maybe you don't have a sister and maybe I, I'm not a very judgmental person. But again, you see laws against this and you see people really condemning other individuals if they think that they might have con- uh, committed incest. We see this with a lot of sexual things, actually. We see this with... Um, with bestiality, we see this with masturbation, we see this with um, uh, with prostitution, with pedophilia, etc. Um, masturbation all... is the real confusing one now that I think about it. Like, no, don't don't waste it. I don't I don't get what the what the logic is there. <laughs> Uh, you know, um, so we, we can do this in our next podcast. We can sure. come back to masturbation. <laughs> All right. um, but uh, but we, we see this also with some kind of hygiene stuff um, and uh, and food choices, um, things that we would personally find disgusting to eat. You might also moralize other people for eating it. You might say that's immoral to eat that, uh, to eat a monkey or something like that. Um and sometimes people think about that as, well, that's moral disgust. I'm disgusted and I find it immoral. And for that, that's probably a different phenomenon again, because you might be feeling disgust just from the mental simulation of engaging in the behavior yourself. And then there's a, well, that's wrong kind of phenomenon. And these people should be punished for doing this. The other phenomenon is the the stealing is wrong or the... Um, you know, gosh, what was the what was the senator who just kind of, uh, you know, putatively committed congressional insider trading? I think it was Richard Burr. Mm. Did you hear about this? Mm-mm. So basically, he's on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he was given information about the severity of the pandemic, and he sold all of his stocks. Yeah, yeah. Like three weeks before the market crashed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and. 
you know, people would say, well, that behavior was disgusting. Yeah. There, there's nothing inherently related to pathogens or related to sex in terms of betraying the public's trust or in terms of using a position of power and trust to benefit yourself specifically. So the question is, what's that about? Now, there are debates in the literature about whether people even have that sensation of kind of pathogen disgust, that kind of um, feeling in the stomach, that revulsion of avoidance. Um, I think that's tricky to tell, honestly, because uh, a lot of people insist, yeah, I actually feel disgusted by that. Some psychologists say, well, you're just saying that as a metaphor to kind of express how much you dislike that behavior. Um, I'd like to sidestep that issue for a second and just focus on how being disgusted by those immoral behaviors might differ from being angered by those immoral behaviors. Now, these, these emotional terms get a little bit messy because when people say they're disgusted by the insider trading, they also might say they're kind of angry. And if they say they're angry, they also might say they're kind of disgusted. But sometimes these emotional responses kind of shift in one way or the other in response to moral violations. And again, some of my work has tried to see, well, what is it about the moral violations that might lead them to elicit, discuss sometimes in anger other times? And so what we've, what we've proposed is thinking about the types of behaviors that anger motivates. So if you feel really angry with someone, what do you do? Um, I want to yell at them. I might even have visions of, 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 uh, fantasizing of violent <laughs> behavior. Um, I yeah. might want to attack them in some way. I might want to uh, punish them. Exactly. That's exactly it. And, uh, you know, um, you're of a, a certain demographic and a certain culture and a certain time, uh, in which you probably won't act on those desires. But you might sometimes, you might actually get into a fight with someone. And if you do punch someone, it's a good chance that you were feeling angry at them. Mm -hmm. um, but all of these types of responses are kind of costly in and of themselves. So basically, if you're getting in someone's face and yelling at them, if you're being physically aggressive with someone, well, that person might yell back at you. They might punch you. Or maybe people who are watching you might think, geez, Shane's kind of an asshole. Shane's kind of a hothead. You know, maybe Shane, maybe my feelings about Shane should change based on him flying off the handle like that. Um, maybe the allies of this person that you're yelling at or attacking, they're going to come and beat you up. Mm -hmm. So basically, these anger responses that you can have, they're not cost free. They might be really good at adjusting that person's behavior. So making it so they don't do that behavior in the future and maybe knowing, well, I shouldn't mess with you, but they're also pretty risky. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now let's think about this. Is, uh, this is just, I'm just thinking about me tweeting uh, through, <laughs> through all of this, revealing, revealing to all of my many followers uh, what a, what a hothead I can be sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, may, well, maybe a costly strategy. <laughs> It, yeah, it is. Well, especially if you were using a lot of curse words and flying off the handle on Twitter, yeah. you could be doing it a little bit differently. And of course, these modern technologies and ways of transmitting information are a little bit different from the the facial expression, getting red in the face and, you know, spittle flying out and actually being prepared to punch someone. But 
um, so again, my part of my research is trying to think, well, what are all these behavioral components of anger and do they actually differ from disgust? And can that give us some clues as to what this moral disgust is doing, what it's for? Um, so what what do you feel like doing if you're disgusted by, uh, you know, that's that story that I told you about uh, about the senator? Hmm. I mean, you make it. A fantastic point. I'm having, because yeah, I guess I do. I feel anger a lot more. Um, I, I guess you, if I felt disgust, maybe I just want to turn off the television or something like that. I, I don't know. So what we've found, and I'll, I'll tell you the kind of the study setup that we've done. We've given moral violations to people. We've had our research participants read about moral violations and We've um, we've varied the costliness of the violation to the participant, okay? And we've done that by asking participants to imagine that the moral violation is targeting them or that it's targeting someone else. Mm -hmm. So an example of this might be um, you see someone uh, reach into your purse and take out $20 versus you see someone reach into someone into another woman's purse and take out $20. And then we ask our participants to um, basically complete a measure that tries to assess their emotional response to this moral violation. And we also ask them how much they would feel like doing different types of things in response to this. Mm. Now, some of these responses are what we could call direct aggression. And they're almost identical to what you described earlier. They're yelling at the person, they're shoving the person, they're getting in the person's face, they're hitting the person. But other responses are what psychologists have called indirect aggression. These are things like gossiping about the person, telling other people what this person has done, trying to damage this person's reputation. Okay. Now these types of things, they're not as good at getting the other person to stop what they're doing. And they're not as good at letting that person know, well, if you commit this moral violation again toward me, there are pretty serious consequences. Mm -hmm. At the same time, one of the whole purposes of gossip and reputation damage is that the target of it isn't necessarily sure who started it. Mm. They're not going to, you know, retaliate against you probably. Now, what we find is that for the exact same moral violation, um, when people consider it committed against them versus committed against another person, they report more anger when it's against them than when it's with another person. Hmm. Disgust is the exact opposite. When it's the same moral violation committed against another person, people report less disgust. Hmm. I'm sorry, they report more disgust than when it's committed against themselves. So again, disgust is higher when the moral violation is targeting someone else. Hmm. Anger is higher when the moral violation is targeting yourself. Now, back to those kind of aggression sentiments. Do I want to punch this person or do I want to spread information to damage that person? The more angry people report being, the more they feel like yelling at the person or shoving them or something like that. But their level of anger is completely unrelated to wanting to gossip about the person. Mm. Disgust is the exact opposite. 
the hmm. more disgusted people feel, the more they want to gossip and damage that person's reputation. But the feelings of disgust are completely unrelated to, well, I want to punch that person or hit that person. Mm -hmm. So what we've argued, and this is, you know, with all of psychology, these are new hypotheses and, you know, there's more work to be done. But we think that the preliminary data are consistent with the idea that disgust responses toward moral violations are motivating these kinds of punishment strategies that are less costly and that kind of recruit other people in the social ecology, other onlookers to kind of coordinate, uh, gang up on, and socially damage this person. Whereas again, anger toward these moral violations might be uh, functioning to dissuade the person from engaging the behavior in the future or sharing your own reputation as someone who shouldn't be messed with. Hmm. So, um, so if you're like a debating um, someone and, and there might be a cost of like being angry, you, you want, you want the crowd to take your side. And if you're, if you're angry and, and you yell at them and attack them, you might come off as a hothead. But if you refer to them as like a filthy woman or something like that, you could potentially recruit, um, uh, people to be on your side against a person. Yeah. And, and beyond the rhetoric, uh, it might even be just uh, voicing to people that's disgusting and having a disgusted facial expression at something that the person says. Hmm. Hmm. So last thing um, is as uh, so if, if there's if there's some correlation between um, more more parasites, more more disgust being being triggered or immune systems weakened, whatever, whatever the case, more parasites in the environment or just more, more cues to disgust in an environment. If that, if that is potentially triggering, um, um, avoidance of, of kind of outgroup, um, uh, different people going to different places, um, uh, as a way of, of potentially avoiding a, a, um, uh, uh, some sort of disease threat or something like that. Do you think that that can also be applied to making people adverse to like new ideas in general? Like if, if you, if you trigger disgust, are people more adverse to say like self-driving cars or, or, or something like that and, and more fond of like, um, going back to old ways of doing things or, or relying on traditional ways of doing things, making things like great again or something. Uh, yeah. Um, so it, it, it's a really uh, provocative idea and hypothesis. I want to say that fortunately, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and that's probably a good thing. So, um, you know, there's uh, in, in the social psychology and the social evolutionary psychology literature, there have been a lot of uh, what are called priming studies. And the idea is that if you put someone in a specific state, then a lot of behaviors and cognitions and intentions can change. And, um, uh, you know, we've done a lot of studies like this with disgust, and we've tried these pathogen priming techniques where you see a bunch of disgust listing pictures, or you read essays that are, you know, describing being vomited on and all this horrible stuff. 
And then we've asked participants um, about their uh, opinions about immigrants. And, um, and we basically find that there's no relationship there. So if you mm. discuss people, they're not being more closed-minded to immigrants. Mm. Um, now, their tendency to be disgusted by things, that's related to their attitudes toward immigrants, but specifically toward immigrants from disease-rich places. Mm. So basically, the more easily disgusted you are, or people are, the less positive they feel toward immigrants from, uh, in the research we did, it was Liberia and um, basically equatorial regions in Africa where we highlighted uh, Ebola threats. Um, but the disgust had a lot less to do with uh, attitudes toward immigrants from, um, well, the examples we used were uh, Syria. So basically violent type places. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, another thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these kind of long-term orientations, they're, they're not fixed. They can change within people, but they're not jumping up and down from day to day. Mm -hmm. um, and so if there is a role of pathogens to play in these, it's probably more of a role of kind of calibrating them somewhere in development. Mm -hmm. And then you reach a certain point and you're probably pretty stable along there rather than, well, you see, you feel disgust or you see some pathogens in the ecology and all of a sudden you're going from Democrat to Republican, you're going from 1950s kind of uh, family traditional orientation to hippie commune kind of orientation. Hmm. So, so if you're, I've, I'm in Wisconsin right now, I've, I've done a lot of factory work um, and I, uh, I did, um, uh, my longest job was in a fact furniture factory in in Wisconsin, and I I noticed, um, it, and maybe this is my own bias, but I I did notice a more aversion to say uh, to like uh, a Mexican stealing a job than say a Canadian stealing a job, and these kind of theories would sort of predict that behavior, right? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of research about the different types of um, competition that people might have for jobs. So low-skilled labor versus high-skilled labor and the stereotype being, uh, it would, and, and a, you know, a stereotype with uh, some validity mm -hmm. that immigrants from certain countries are going to be more of a threat to people with um, uh, lower training kind of jobs and immigrants from other countries are going to be more of a threat to other kinds of um, jobs. Uh, now, of course, uh, every situation, every individual is different, but um, as far as extrapolating that specifically with disease, mm -hmm. uh, there's, a, there's a lot of ways that Mexicans and Canadians are, uh, are different from each other. Mm. Um, so uh, as we wrap up, is there any, uh, was there any open, uh, was there any loose ends that, that we, um, that you wanted to tie up before we... No, I think we just have to, you know, unspool an entire strand talking about uh, hippies and uh, kissing cousins and that type of stuff. So, and masturbation. And um, masturbation, right. <laughs> well, we'll have to do a part two sometime. This was a really fantastic conversation. You, you, um, you, you know, I, I have to say I was just like a hair nervous because I just had David Carlton... Uh, um, uh, Carlton on, uh, 
pretty recently. And I'm always like, I hope we're still going to have a lot to talk about. And it hasn't all been covered already. And uh, and the way in which you articulated some of the things that we did cover in in a a fresh way. But then I was I was surprised how many times my mind was blown by by stuff that I I thought I was already kind of familiar with this research. So that's really, really cool stuff. And I, I, I will be. Uh, I'll be thinking about this research for a very long time and sharing it with a lot of folks. So thank you so much for what you do and joining me. Fantastic, Shane. I really appreciate being on here. Thanks, uh, thanks for the conversation. It was a great time. Awesome. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. See you next time.